Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected, where each week we gather to make connections that break through that illusion of separation. And I'm confident that something you hear today in this next hour may open you to the infinite field of possibility in your relationship with food. Yeah, I said food. Is there a connection between the quality of our food and the current health epidemic in the world. Our guest today says that ill health and environmental destruction could be a result of toxic food. And he also says you can heal your body and our world with food. So is there such a thing as healthy, sustainable, humane, and conscious food for all? We're going to explore this and so much more after I introduce our guests. So I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I introduce Ocean Robbins. He's the co-founder and CEO of the Food Revolution Network, and they have over 250,000 members in that network. It's really quite exquisite. He's also adjunct professor at Chapman University's Peace Studies Department and co-authored a book with his dad, the best-selling John Robbins, and that book is Voices of the Food Revolution. He launched Youth for Environmental Sanity, otherwise known as YES, at the age of 16 and directed the organization for 20 years. Ocean has spoken in person to more than 200,000 people and facilitated hundreds of gatherings for leaders from more than 65 nations. He is a recipient of many awards, including the Freedom's Flame Award and the National Jefferson Award for Outstanding Public Service. And when you hear this conversation today, you are going to understand why. So, welcome, Ocean. Well, thank you so much. It's my privilege to be here with you. Mm, Well, thank you. It is my privilege to have you with us. And I've been looking forward to this conversation because there's so much out there in our media. And literally, this is such an important topic. Everyone needs good quality food to eat to survive. And our planet needs to survive. And so this conversation is so important. But before we get started, Ocean... We have a traditional question here on the Dr. Julie Show, and I'd like to ask you it first, which is, Ocean Robbins, what does all things connected mean to you? Oh, my goodness. It means that (laughs) everything we do, we don't do in isolation. We do as a part of a fabric of relationships. And I, I work with food. And so I look at how food is so much more than a commodity. It's also a community. It's a web of relationships and interactions that literally becomes us. So what you eat is linked to policies and corporate practices and farm workers and the earth and the rain and the soil, and it's linked to animal treatment, it's linked to air and water quality, and it's linked to manufacturing practices, 
all over the planet. What you eat can carry toxic pesticides. It can also carry life-giving phytonutrients and flavonoids that can help you fight cancer. And you take all that into your body, and it becomes you. It literally fuels you and also becomes the stuff you're made of. And so what we eat is very political, it's very social, and it's also very personal and very completely intimate. And in that sense, I think food embodies in a powerful, tangible way our relationship to the world around us and how we interact. We have this myth in our times that we're isolated consumers, that we're, that we're somehow separate, that we can uh, lift one boat and not lift all boats. But actually, a rising tide does lift all boats. And on this planet, this, this perilous, beautiful, extraordinary planet that we live on in times of crisis as well as times of opportunity, I think we are in this together far more deeply and profoundly than many of us realize. Mm. You know, we, we can just be complete right here, Ocean. That was so beautiful. And your words were poignant, and yet they were so poetic. And I really appreciate that as, as really framing our conversation today. You not only talk about our relationship with food in our body and what it does on the microcosmic level, but you've also really framed it beautifully in what it does for us as community and planet and in relationship to the good of the whole. So I really appreciate that. Let's start though for our listeners because those words of wisdom have really come through your life in a beautiful way and also through your whole family's journey with their relationship with food. So let's start from the beginning because you are a part of a family that a lot of people will recognize as soon as you say the name. So tell us a little bit about how did your relationship with food begin and and why are you such an advocate and revolutionary for us here on the planet today? Okay. Well, yeah, it does, my, my food story does go back you know, a, a generation or two. My grandfather started an ice cream company. It was called Baskin Robbins. And my dad grew up with 31 flavors of ice cream in the freezer at all times. And he grew up with an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool. He was groomed from his early childhood to one day join in running the family company. But he chose, when the time came to make this choice, he chose to walk away from any access to the family wealth to follow, uh, as we jokingly say in our family, his own rocky road. He went on to um, become a best-selling author, writing books about food and health. And, you know, my grandpa uh, was not happy with my dad's decision. Um, And for a long time, their relationship was deeply estranged. He'd spent his whole life building this uh, extraordinary company, one of the most successful entrepreneurs in American history. And then his only son, who he offered the chance to join him in it, said no. And um, so my grandpa was pretty mad. Um, but as the years went by, a remarkable story unfolded. So first of all, his, his brother-in-law and business partner, Bert Baskin, uh, died of heart disease. And so this man who had tremendous wealth uh, ended up leaving his, his kids fatherless and his, his wife a widow. And my grandpa, as he entered his early 70s, was facing serious uh, health problems, uh, diabetes, heart disease, uh, weight issues. And uh, his doctors leveled with him and basically said, Mr. Robbins, you're a very sick man and, and you're, you're not, you don't have long to live on this planet uh, unless you make some changes. 
and then handed him a copy of one of my dad's books, Diet for New America, and encouraged him to read it. And remarkably enough, my grandpa did read it, and he made changes, and he ended up giving up ice cream and radically changing his diet and getting tremendous results. He lost 30 pounds. He got off all of his diabetes and high blood pressure medications, and his golf game improved seven strokes. Um, so, so we've seen in our family, you know, personally, what can happen uh, when you eat the standard American diet, and we've seen what can happen when you make a change. And, you know, I have so much um, gratitude and respect for my grandpa's willingness to have an open mind. You know, I think I admire more his willingness to learn from his son and make the changes that would lead to his health even more than I do all his business achievements. Because, you know, it's of the heart and because we can learn something from that about, about how we can make choices of health and what they can lead to. So in my own life, inspired by my grandpa's uh, willingness to evolve and grow and, and, and make change in his life, and inspired by my dad's uh, conscience and example, I started a nonprofit organization when I was 16 to uh, educate my peers about food and health and environmental issues and spoke to school assemblies across the United States and around the world and reached several hundred thousand students and, and ended up leading um, trainings and retreats for leaders in over 65 countries. Uh, and then about five years ago, uh, I joined forces with my dad directly in launching the Food Revolution Network. And we've quickly grown into a network of over 250,000 members standing up for healthy, sustainable, humane, delicious food for everybody. And I'll tell you, I am so excited about this work because when I look at what's going on in the world of food today, uh, on the one hand, I'm horrified. And on the other hand, I'm exhilarated. And I'll tell you why I'm horrified is because we have a toxic food culture. Because we have a food industry that acts like health didn't matter. And we have a health industry that acts like food didn't matter. And we have a third of our kids expected to get diabetes in their lifetime. We have tens of millions of people living chronically sick and suffering from illnesses that we know how to prevent. We could drastically improve the lives of tens of millions of people. We could save tens of millions of lives. We, we could have more kids not have to lose their parents and more spouses not have to lose their beloveds. And, and let, we don't have to have so many people dying of Alzheimer's disease. We can, we can reverse these problems because Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, obesity, these are the major scourges of our time. And every one of them is directly linked to diet and lifestyle. And that's also why I'm exhilarated because we can do so much better because we know what it takes to radically transform our outcomes and, and help save our economy and help save our communities and help save the lives and wind up, by the way, with a more sustainable planet in the bargain. Yeah, what a deal. You know, one with the other is quite exquisite, actually. But let's start, let's, let's start with our bodies. And, and really what we know to be true is our relationship with food directly affects our relationship with our bodies and each other. And yet there's, there's so much out there, Ocean, help us, help our listeners. There's so much out there about gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free. There's so much about GMOs. It, it is so overwhelming and confusing and people don't even know how to pronounce paleo diet you know, in a lot of ways. There's so much going on. Help us simplify it, Robin. What is good for us? Well, I'll tell you. There's, there's some things that are not controversial, and then there's things that are more controversial. So 
here's what's not controversial. Here's what's, what's agreed on by almost every major intelligent expert who looks at any of the data today. Okay? We need to eat less sugar. The average American consumes 150 pounds of added sugar per year. We need to eat a whole lot less of that. We need to eat less trans fats or none. We need to eat less additives, preservatives, colorings, flavorings, and chemicals. We need to eat more real, whole, natural food. We need to respect Mother Nature more. We need more food that comes from plants and less food that was produced in plants. Uh, okay, so th that's all pretty widely recognized. I think it's also pretty widely recognized that we need to eat more vegetables, that they have tremendous health-giving properties, that we need to eat more fiber. Less than 5% of the U.S. population gets the recommended amount of fiber, and the recommended amount is probably too low. We know pretty, pretty clearly now that we're better off getting our vitamins from food than we are from pills. In fact, often when you eat the pills in isolation, you end up getting none of the expected benefits. Um, but when you eat vitamins in the form of food, somehow it comes with cofactors and nutrients that enable it to become bioavailable and to be actually useful to the body. Um, so uh, we also need to eat less processed carbohydrates. We need to eat less processed fats, right? So less white flour, less white rice, less, less oils in general, um, and uh, more, again, more natural whole foods that you can grow in the ground and cook in a pot or put in a salad bowl and eat straight away, okay? So where I think we've got some controversy is around things like gluten. A lot of people find that they're gluten intolerant or, of course, they have celiac disease. And for people who are gluten intolerant or have celiac disease, uh, they're best off not consuming gluten. Uh, for other people, some folks say no one should eat it. Other folks say it's fine for a majority of the population, but uh, not for everybody. The, the bottom line is you've got you've to do your own testing. You've got to look at your own body and see how you respond. Um, but if you're having mysterious health ailments and you haven't tried going gluten-free, probably a good idea to give it a try for six months and, and see what happens, right? Um, there's some controversy around grains. Uh, some people think that that, you know, in the Paleolithic time, our Paleolithic ancestors consumed little or no grains, and there, there's various health problems with them. Other people think that whole grains are actually really good for you. Um, again, there, too, to some extent, you've got to check out your own body and see what works for you. My personal perspective on this, based on the data I've seen, is that whole grains, particularly grains like quinoa or amaranth or buckwheat, which are called pseudo-grains, um, have a lot of really valuable nutrients in them and a lot of fiber and can be a part of a balanced and wholesome diet. There's also controversy about animal products and the right use of animal products. And I'll say that most of the people that I think, um, that I respect, recognize that animal products that are pasture-raised from animals that aren't fed hormones and antibiotics and from animals that are treated decently and have a decent quality of life are going to be better, are going to be an improvement from a humanitarian, environmental, and health perspective over factory farmed animal products where the animals live in abject misery and, you know, where, where mother pigs are forced to live in these gestational crates where they literally can't even turn around, um, where, you know, chickens are driven crazy and they have to have their beaks cut off so they don't peck each other to death because they're, they're driven insane by the conditions they live in, and where animals are pumped full of antibiotics in order to keep them alive under torturous conditions. Most people would recognize when you look at the data on this that that eating animals that are raised in this way is not only bad for your planet and bad for your ethics, but it's also bad for your health. Um, 
That said, whether pasture-raised animal products have a place in a healthy diet is a matter of controversy. And my personal perspective is that when you look at the data and you look at the metrics, our planet cannot sustain the quantity of animal products that we're currently consuming uh, and produce them in a sustainable way, not even close. So we just don't have the grassland for the amount of pasture it would take to sustainably raise pasture-raised beef in that way. We don't, we don't have the ecosystem capacity. We'd have to cut down every tree on the planet, and we still wouldn't have enough. So I say we must collectively reduce our consumption of animal products. And for those who do choose to consume animal products, we need to um, you know, be very conscious and intentional about where they're coming from. There's a lot of lying, if I may say so, going on with uh, companies that are pretending that their animal products are humanely raised and and they're really not all that you might think they are. For example, uh, cage-free eggs could still come from birds that live in what essentially is a giant cage. They might never see the light of day. They might never see a blade of grass. They might never peck in the dirt. And they might be having their beaks cut off and living in insane conditions and having, you know, um, only one cubic foot per bird, right? Or two cubic feet per bird for their entire lives. But they're in a warehouse with five or 10,000 other birds. So I, that, to me, does not qualify as a humane living condition. But uh, on the other hand, when a bird is truly pasture-raised and it does peck around it in the dirt, there's the potential for that to be part of a balanced permaculture system or a holistic ecosystem management that can actually make sense ecologically. And then you have to decide what your own ethics are. So in the broad sense, I'm saying we need to eat less processed junk and more real foods. We need to get away from added sugars and chemicals and additives and flavorings and colorings, and we need to consume less animal products. And for those who do, do choose to consume them, make sure they're very consciously raised in ways that are humane, that are sustainable to the best of the abilities of the producer, and uh, that are in keeping with your own sense of values and ethics. Mm-hmm. So with the more controversial, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about genetically modified. Can you <laughs> okay. explain that to us? I would be glad to. Um, yeah, so, so here's the deal. Um, GMO, some people think it means God move over, but it actually doesn't. It means genetically modified organisms. And this has been uh, coming into our marketplace in just over 20, the last 20 years now. Monsanto is the company that is the biggest um, proponent of GMOs. They're joined by Dow AgroSciences and, and Syngenta and a few other companies in developing and pushing these technologies. But Monsanto is, is by far the biggest uh, company in this field. And they have made some promises, these companies have, about what the promise of GMOs was. They've said that GMOs would lead to more drought-resistant crops, to higher yields, to lower pesticide use, and to better flavor and nutritional values. Those all sound like great things. If science could give us those benefits, who wouldn't want those benefits, right? But, but here's the really sad thing, is that so far, 20-plus uh, years into the GMO experiment, with uh, vast areas of cropland, with most of our corn and soy, canola, and sugar beet now growing, as well as most of our cotton, now growing in uh, using genetically modified seeds, we haven't seen any of those benefits. The, the data shows that genetically modified organisms or genetically engineered crops have not led to higher yields. They haven't led to more drought resistance. They haven't brought us uh, any greater flavor or nutritional value. And they've, 
led to more than 500 million pounds of additional pesticide use. This is actually, uh, we've, we've got chemical companies, because Monsanto and Dow and these other companies, they make most of their money making and selling pesticides. And they've created seeds that actually are dependent on their pesticides. So, uh, so what we've got is um, a bunch of lies, to be totally honest with you, that, that are masquerading as public benefit you know, companies. Monsanto's website looks like it's a like it's a small community-based nonprofit, you know, trying to serve the world. But this is a company that's actually a pesticide company. They brought us Agent Orange and Dioxin. They're out to make the most money they can, and I can't blame them. That's what most companies are out to do. It's just that their particular business model is trying to do that by controlling the world's seed supply and manufacturing and selling more and more pesticides. What genetically engineered crops have brought us is basically two traits. And this is what 99% of the crops on the market right now confer. Well, number one is that they are resistant to herbicides, like most, most prominently Roundup, which is made by Monsanto. It's, the active ingredient in Roundup is glyphosate, which was recently declared by the World Health Organization to be a probable carcinogen, which means it probably causes cancer, right? We're pouring massive amounts of this stuff <clears throat> on our fields. And these crops are resistant to these herbicides. And then, so the, herb the, the weeds die, but the plants don't, is the idea. And now we've got super weeds that are resistant to the herbicides. So now they're stacking these, um, these crops with multiple resistance to multiple herbicides. So now they can use combinations of Roundup, and then they can throw in some, you know, some other toxic herbicides, such as, uh, 2,4-D, which is one of the active ingredients in Agent Orange, they can put these on the crops. Okay, so, so then what you've got is it's kind of like um, it's kind of like we're in a chemical arms race, and the enemy is the weeds. But 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 what you see is that that every time we we come up with a new concoction, the weeds are going to get develop resistance, and uh, and so we have to come up with something new, and it keeps getting more and more toxic, and we're putting these poisons on our food. Okay. The other major characteristic that we've got in our genetically engineered crops today is that they are um, themselves producing in every cell of the plant toxin called Bt. This is a toxin that, that kills certain bugs, and it's been used in organic agriculture for some time. It's generally considered safe, but historically it was sprayed on the outside of the plant, and it could be washed off, and it was used in judicious quantities. It's now in every cell of the plant. You can't wash it off. These plants are living pesticide factories. They're literally registered with the EPA as pesticides. And we're consuming them with every bite of food. Now, we don't know for sure if Bt is toxic to humans or not. A lot of scientists think it might not be. Some people think it could be. What we do know is that we are the human guinea pigs. There's been no long-term safety testing of this stuff. It's being conducted on the American public right here and right now. 75% of the foods on our supermarket shelves and in our restaurant menus contain genetically modified organisms. It means we're eating unprecedented quantities of Bt and glyphosate and other herbicides day in and day out. And so what does that mean? What is that doing? Well, we don't know for sure. We know that, that in the 20-plus years that, that genetically modified crops have been in widespread use in the United States, we've seen dramatic downturns in public health. We've seen rapid increase in rates of ADD and, and, and digestive problems and gluten intolerance and, and uh, autism and um, 
a whole host of health ailments, not to mention diabetes and obesity. And, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation. We don't know if this is the reason. But when you see a correlation this strong, I think it, it at least uh, begets an interest that, that we, should, we should take a deeper look. And when you see a correlation this strong, I think it also evokes the question, shouldn't we have the right to know if our foods are genetically engineered? More than 90% of the American public wants GMO labeling. That, that the, the reason we want it is so that we can make informed choices, because most people believe that that human beings deserve to be the authors of their own destiny and to make their own health choices and to have the information they need to make those choices. And when you have a ubiquitous innovation, patented innovation that's entered our food supply, that's potentially, potentially linked to some significant health concerns, then I think it, it falls upon the companies to have a responsibility to let the public make its own choices. Mm. Ah, we need to just breathe that in. There's so much there for us. And, and I really appreciate the call to allow us to make our own choices, um, whether that be to refrain or, or to enjoy that. It's, it's really an important piece. And a lot of our listeners will appreciate that because we're, you know, we're at this pivotal point with a, so many different things. So we're going to take a break and I would love, I, I know we also have this relationship with our environment and our current practices of, of manufacturing food do contribute to an interesting relationship with our environment. And, and you talk about even the destruction of our environment. So I want to briefly touch on that, but I also want to bring the hope into the conversation because you're doing some really amazing things with the Food Revolution Network, and you do have really beautiful suggestions for us to move forward in our relationship with food. So we're going to take a quick break, but Robin, before we do, I mean, excuse me, Ocean, before we do, tell the our listeners where they can find you. What's the website? Foodrevolution.org is our website. Again, that's foodrevolution.org. And you can also sign up. We, we interview some of the top food experts on the planet. And every year we produce the Food Revolution Summit. And um, even when the summit isn't coming up, we then have the most recent summit available online for you. And you can listen to incredible interviews. And you can sign up for that at foodrevolutionsummit.org. Okay, excellent. And I'm just going to remind our listeners again, we are talking with Ocean Robbins, founder and CEO of Food Revolution Network. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This week's episode, Danger at the Old Well. Last one to the old well's a rotten egg. Ha-ha, I win. Whoa! Ah! Sassy! Johnny fell down the well. I'm wet. What, Sassy? You know where Mr. Gunderson keeps his rope? Go get it, girl. What? You'd rather use his time to set people straight about shelter pet adoption? I'm cold. People shouldn't be afraid to adopt from a shelter? 
that because shelter pets are screened for sound health and temperament? I'm wet and cold! Sassy, what about Johnny? <laughs> what? Let Johnny sit in the well until he learns to be more self-reliant? Sassy! What'd he say? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Have you ever lost a cat? And have you ever wanted to get your cat back after you lost it? Hi there, I'm Andrew Hoffman. I went on this website called inventnow.org. Then I decided to make an invention of my own. It's called the lost cat magnet invention. So you can get your cat back after you lost it. Just turn it on and lost cats stick to it. That's a good cat. If your cat was hiding up in a tree, it won't be up a tree anymore. It will be stuck to the lost cat magnet. And sometimes they fly toward you in the air. Just listen to one satisfied cat. <coughs> See, that's proof. You should go to the inventnow.org website too. But just remember one thing. Don't do a lost cat magnet. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Come to the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn. Or babysit. I saw lizards and squirrels and bugs. Ladybugs, caterpillars. It's really cool, actually. A place where you don't have to make time for free time. Lots and lots of kinds of species here. Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the other you. The enchanted you. It's magic what flowers do. The adventurous you. My favorite tree. Yes. Is that one. The free-to-be-me you. <laughs> Ask your parents to take you to this not-so-far-away place. Come to the forest, where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. I'm Julie Kroll. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. If you're inspired by our conversation today and want to share it with others, or maybe just listen to it again, visit our website, thedrjulieshow.com, where you can find the links to all of the archives. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com, and you can also find our list of upcoming guests. Also, stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie. We're here today talking with Ocean Robbins, founder of the Food Revolution Network. And Ocean, we we could talk about so many different things, but as we move this conversation out toward global, you write a lot and talk about food in relationship to who we are as humans on the planet. And how do we create healthy, sustainable, humane, and conscious food? So you've, you've also been talking about literally how food can heal our bodies and heal the world. So as we move this conversation out, what, what is the call to action when we think about our planet, when we think about feeding the hungry, when we think about those words that you described, healthy, sustainable, humane, and conscious for all, we like to talk about what's good of the whole here on our program. Where do we go with this conversation? Okay, well, you know, we have uh, 
about seven and a half billion people on this planet, more than at any time in, in the history. And uh, we humans are consuming ever more uh, resources with development and tends to come expanded consumption. And many developing countries around the world are increasing their consumption of resources. And so we tend to consume forests and ecosystems and minerals and, and, and topsoil. All these things tend to go down. Water supply tends to go down as human populations and consumption levels go up. And the other, the, the other thing that goes up with us at this point is carbon in the atmosphere as well as pollution and, and um, you know, the supply of toxins and chemicals in the world. So all of this puts us on a, a collision course of sorts with systemic environmental collapse. We, we're in a world right now where every day on this planet we have less resources and more people consuming more resources. So, so in that context, the capacity to reduce our ecological footprint and to become more truly sustainable in our lives and in our lifestyles and as a species becomes a, a critical, critically important thing that actually may, um, may hold in its balance the future of our species on this planet. So um, when we look at food, which is my area of focus, this comes up in a huge way because the mass production, monolithic, mega agricultural system that is the norm today for much of the food growing in the developed world is produced in ways that are heavily dependent on machines and fossil fuels and, and chemicals and uh, that are not sustainable. They are robbing our topsoil of vital nutrients. They're depleting it. They're consuming vast amounts of water. In the state of California, where I live, more than 80% of our water is going to agriculture. And we've got a drought in our state that's, that's quite severe. So when we look at how agriculture is using that water, we see a, a great deal of waste, actually. In, the, in, in California, we export more than 100 billion gallons of water every year to China in the form of alfalfa that we grow in our state and then ship over there so they can feed it to livestock. Now, in a, in a water-poor state where 35 million people are faced with water rationing and, and fear for the, the water future of, a, of this state, to be exporting 100 billion gallons of water every year in the form of alfalfa to, to China for livestock is, is lunacy, if I may say so. And it, it contributes minimally to our economy, right? Minimally. I mean, obviously, it's cost-effective for the farmers who are doing it or they wouldn't be doing it, but, but at what price to the future of, of our economy and state, right? And so collectively and globally, we see a similar dynamic where we feed so much of our grain and our soybeans to livestock, and we're wasting most of it. You know, it, it takes eight or ten pounds of grain to produce one pound of feedlot beef in the United States today, and the rest is wasted. And, and it's not just wasted, it's worse than wasted. It's, it's turning into pollution. You know, the, these animals are belching methane, and, and their, 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 their um, excrement is polluting our water supplies and contaminating them with nitrates and and in, in pork production facilities, we have these toxic lagoons where their waste is, is literally sickening, you know, countless people. So, so in this context, 
uh, it does not make any sense to be consuming vast amounts of animal products that are produced in these what, what the industry calls concentrated animal feeding operations and, and what maybe activists call factory farms. It doesn't make any sense to be feeding our livestock grains, torturing them, and then consuming their flesh, particularly when you take into account the, uh, the health impact of that flesh on our lives. So, so when I call for a more sustainable food production system, I'm calling for a food production system that enhances the topsoil instead of depleting it, that is more water-conserving. You know, we find that, that if you really want drought-resistant crops, you want to go in with having deeper topsoil and more vibrant and rich topsoil because that holds the water when it rains. And it, it keeps this layer of moisture under the surface that the roots can tap into. When you, when you do mass production, mega agriculture, you end up with soil that is functionally dead. It's, it's poisoned. And bugs and worms and all the creatures that bring soil to life, a lot of them are dead. And so what you end up with then is food that doesn't carry the vitality and life force that it could. And also that topsoil is more likely to wash away. And we have less and less of it. Without topsoil, we can't grow our food. So I want regenerative agriculture that takes carbon out of the atmosphere and captures it in the soil. That it's more drought tolerant and resistant to extreme weather conditions. That can actually absorb water to prevent floods as well. I want to see an agricultural system that isn't dependent on poisons that are carcinogenic and that kill farm workers and that wind up killing us. I want to see a food system that vibrant and life-giving and nourishing and that treats the earth and the animals and the farm workers like, like, like they deserve our respect and like the future of our species depends on them. They owe us a huge debt of gratitude and we owe them a responsible relationship. And if we step into that responsible relationship, if we treat them as a part of our community, then we reap the benefits and our species has a heck of a lot better chance of living and thriving into the future. Wow. I just listening to you talk about this theoretically is inspiring this, what this new food production system might look like if it's not the mass produce, the, the mass producing, I was going to say um, production. That's a dead end here. And I love the term regenerative agriculture um very important very very important so ocean help us understand what this literally may look like if we stopped the mass production today and really evolved our practices and evolved farming and our food production what might it look like on a local level what might it look like for me um in my neighborhood Okay, well, that's another piece. I'm glad you bring up the word local because that's a big part of the vision too, right? When we're shipping food thousands of miles, of course, it takes fossil fuels to transport it thousands of miles, but it also reduces freshness and it it changes our economic relationships. And there's something really beautiful about having a relationship with the people who grow your food. It's having it be fresh. And if you go to a farmer's market, for example, and you eat a strawberry from that farmer's market that might have been picked that morning and grown by somebody on a small scale who has a few people working on their farm, and they're organic, and they're sustainable, and they treat their workers right, 
and they they work hard in the soil, and they, it's not all done by a bunch of machines. And then they bring that delicious strawberry that was fresh picked that morning to that market, and it carries a vitality and a life force and a sweetness that you just won't find in berries that were picked two weeks ago at some foreign country, you know, and then shipped around the world, and they were picked green, and they've ripened in a plastic package. And if they're not moldy, you're lucky. You know, that... There's a difference. There's a difference in nutrition. There's a difference in flavor. And there's a difference in ethics. So I, I think that supporting more local living economies is absolutely critical to the food revolution. And I'm excited by the explosive growth of farmers markets and community-supported agriculture. You know, there's been a fourfold increase in membership in community-supported agriculture programs in just the last 12 years. So more and more people are are signing up and you know our family participates in this. It's such a fun thing because once a week we go and pick up this big bag of groceries. It's all vet- vegetables and a bit of fruits. It comes from a local farm and we are totally seasonal because we're eating what they're growing at that time. And if they have a good crop of persimmons, then we're going to get a lot of persimmons. And if they have a good crop of broccoli, then we're going to get a lot of broccoli. And, and heaven knows in the summertime, we're likely to get quite a few tomatoes and, and zucchini because mm-hmm. uh, those tend to grow abundantly and prolifically. But the reality is that we're eating uh, what, what's doing well in our ecosystem. And there's something so beautiful about that because we also have a stake in that farm's success. If they have a big harvest, then they share it bountifully. And the, we end up getting a great deal because... We're sharing the risk with them, and they know they have some stable income. They're not dependent on the whims of Safeway, who could buy or sell in his cutthroat and just wants to you know, get everything for the cheapest possible price, or big-scale distributors. It's not a race to the bottom. They get a partnership. We invest in the farm. We invest in their future. They have stable income every month, and it makes it a lot easier for them to do business and even to get loans and to have the resources they need to, to last. And it also works for us because we end up getting a much, much more food per, per dollar spent because we're willing to work with what the farms actually got. And they share some stuff that, you know, might not be, look quite as pretty. Whole Foods probably wouldn't put it on the shelves, but it's, it's real. It's real, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't need my food to be completely blemish-free. I don't mind if there's a little speck of something. I know it was picked that day. I know it's fresh. I know it's carrying vitality. And I'm much more interested in real food than plastic, cosmetically perfect food that's been drenched in poison. Mm. Thank you for that. You know, I, I one of my favorite things is visiting restaurants in cities that might have that rooftop garden and they're doing the farm-to-table approach with whatever's in season. And, and that's one good model for us, whether it's in our neighborhood, with a community garden, with the farmer's markets, with these restaurants. There's so much to be said about that. And then we have those less fortunate. We have those who are living in poverty and we have those who are in environments where they can't grow their own food. So what do we do about those parts of us as a whole human species here? Well, you know, one of the, um, I just, I've just got to say that I think one of the um, most dominant social justice issues of our times is food. Um, because we've, we've got a society where, you know, so many people can't afford healthy, real food and wind up um, paying the greatest price for our toxic food system. Rates of obesity and diabetes and cancer and heart disease and all the other ailments that are directly linked to food and lifestyle 
are all the highest in our low-income communities and in communities of color. We've also got the reality that, that uh, the life expectancy for the average farm worker is, is 49 years because they're exposed to such terrible working conditions, they live in such poverty, and they, frankly, are exposed to vast amounts of pesticides. So even though their average dying at age 49 and cancer typically shows up later in life, you know, their cancer rates are just off the charts. Mm. So in this context, I think that real, healthy, natural food is one of the most dominant social justice issues of our time. And what do you think it does to kids growing up in low-income communities in their brain development if they don't have the nutrients that they need to thrive? How is it going to affect their academic performance, their, their future employment? So these are, these are actually vicious circles that, that keep communities locked in cycles of poverty. And, and there, are, there are studies linking um, you know, prison inmates to poor food, to food additives. To, there are studies linking behavior and acting out and acts of violence to people not having basic nutrients that help their brains thrive. And there are clearly studies linking food to, to Alzheimer's. So when you eat a diet that's real and whole and natural, you are actually helping to expand that sector of our economy. And with the economics of scale and with the economics of demand, you are ultimately encouraging more people to grow food the right way, which is going to bring down the price and increase the accessibility, the access to those foods. You know, um, Ron Finley, the, the gorilla gardener in South Central Los Angeles, who who grows food, real food, in uh, public on public property, like in medians between houses and, and the street, um, and is encouraging people to to turn public spaces into food forests that are available to all. You know, he refers to. The, uh, his community of South Central Los Angeles as not just a food desert, but what he calls a food prison. Because you've got to break out in order to get real food. And, you know, there's no, there's no grocery stores that sell organic, natural, whole foods for many, many, many miles. There's epidemics of convenience stores that sell convenient crap that's, that's toxic. And, and frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, that's lethal. You eat enough of it, and so um, so. What, what my vision is a food revolution that creates access to an opportunity for healthy, sustainable, humane, delicious food for everybody. I want it to be accessible, and I want it to be affordable. We're seeing breakthrough movements with food stamps becoming taken in farmers' markets, um, with um, you know more and more even food food banks and soup kitchens starting to think about serving people real food instead of just processed canned junk. And uh, that movement is growing, and it's got a long, long ways to go. Our school systems, our, our school lunches have been notorious for, for feeding our, our kids the worst of the worst. They're improving. They're improving. They've got, again, a long ways to go, but they are improving. And our kids deserve that, and I think even, honestly, our integrity demands that of us. We need to make healthy, real food priority, and we need to make it available and accessible, especially to the most vulnerable. Mm. Wow. And, and so as we really work toward the accessible and the affordable, I'm just, I'm just thinking about as we begin to speak our voice through our shopping 
and putting our money where our vote is for what we want for that accessible and affordable, it gives those farmers opportunity to create and, and to give and to, you know, get that food where it needs to be around our planet. What do we do? What do we do in the deserts? What do we do with people who really are on the far um, fringes geographically for good food production? Well, if you mean literal deserts, like places where there's not a lot of water, um, you know, then what we need to do, people, I mean, there's actually a whole movement around people growing food within whatever their ecosystem can sustain. And so, you know, wherever you live, whatever your context, you know, obviously if there's people living there, then there's probably a way that food's getting there and water's getting there. So, you know, you look at that. I don't think every single ecosystem is meant to grow food. You, you can have a hard time growing fruits and vegetables in Alaska in the wintertime. Um, and so some people, you know, being dependent upon their particular ecosystem means adapting to what's available to some extent in their community. And I, I'm not an advocate for, you know, being an extremist. And I mean, I know people who go on like the 10 mile diet and they don't eat anything that isn't grown within 10 miles of them. I think that's, that's wonderful for people who want to do that, but you're going to quickly find that you're going to miss some things like salt and, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> stuff that may not grow within 10 miles of you, right? So um, so it's kind of a privileged conversation to be able to think in those terms. And most of us are, are still, to a good extent, dependent upon supply chains. And so in that context, then, you know, I say just do the best you can, you know, with what's available yeah. in your region. And quite frankly, there's some companies like Thrive Market that, uh, that provide mail order, you know, online-based ordering where people can order foods and get it delivered straight to, delivered straight to their door and uh, they offer better prices than you'll find in, in uh, you know, stores. And there's a convenience to that. They're kind of becoming the Amazon of, of natural foods, if you will. And uh, when you look at it from a resource perspective, it can actually save quite a bit of resources to not have all the lights and heat and refrigeration and air conditioning and, and um, everything else that goes into running a retail store. So, um, so there are, you know, potentially some advantages despite the annoyance, if you will, of the shipping, um, we also have to recognize that every store is also getting all of its food delivered to it from somewhere mm-hmm. else anyway, and there's long supply chains. So you're not necessarily uh, leading to more resource consumption if you order from an online source. It may even be less, although um, those certainly farmer's markets and actual local food is, is always the best bet when you can do that. Beautiful. I always like to tell people to shop around the perimeter of the grocery store. That's where all the fresh or frozen is. And just, you know, don't even go down those aisles unless you need to get a little bit of salt, like we were talking about. So, so Ocean, this topic is so important here. And um, your plan, everything that you've laid out for us with the new food production system, regenerative agriculture, accessible and affordable for all, all of that is really brilliant. So I'm just wondering in these last few minutes of the show, what inspiration and hope can you leave with us? You're seeing the change, you're reporting the change, you're gathering the leaders in this food revolution movement and and working with it every day. What, what message of hope can you leave with us? Oh, my goodness. I have so much hope. As long as there is breath in your lungs and blood in your veins, there's hope in your life. 
as bad as things are with our toxic food system, that's how much better they can be with the change. Wherever you are on your life journey, whatever you've eaten up to this point, however you've lived up to this point, you have a choice right now and right here about what you do from here, with what you do with the information that you have available to you. And the beautiful thing is that you get to choose what you take in your body, and you get to have an, a choice about where it comes from, how it was produced, how it's prepared, and what kind of habits you create around food. When you create truly life-giving, health-promoting, values-aligned habits, you help to transform your life, and you help to transform your world. Food is an opportunity to, bring, to create integrity and congruence between your values and your actions. And as you step into that opportunity, your life will become richer, your arteries will become clearer, your immune system will become stronger, your sleep will become deeper, your energy and life will become more vital and powerful, you'll become more capable of doing what you're alive for and what you long to do. You'll have more energy for what you love, and you'll be more congruent with who you are. So in the world of food, you can become an everyday food revolutionary. You can take a stand with your choices for the life and the health and the vitality and the dreams that you hold and the future that you want. And when you do that, I actually believe that you do so not just for yourself, but for all of us. Food is deeply social. It connects us to each other and to the whole web of life on this planet. So I honor you and I celebrate you for every choice you make. Such a beautiful... Um vision for all of us and I really I want to bring us back home for this last minute into this relationship that you're speaking of that food is really a relationship and it's a relationship to our body and to each other and to every cell of our being like you were talking about nourishing every cell of it it's also a relationship with the earth and and our future and our children. So I honor you, Ocean Robbins. I really appreciate your message and your vision and everything you're doing to help facilitate this on our planet today. Thank you so much for sharing this. Absolutely. My privilege. Thank you. Oh, yes. And I just want to remind all of our friends out here listening that you can find Ocean at foodrevolution.org. And every year he does the Food Revolution Summit. I've listened to it. It's very popular. And that is foodrevolutionsummit.com. Or and .org, actually. foodrevolutionsummit.org, yeah. Okay, foodrevolutionsummit.org. And I think there's a link on foodrevolution.org as well. Is that right? There is, yeah. Okay, excellent. So, again, thank you, thank you, Ocean. Our listeners um, have been so informed. And if they haven't found something, just one thing that's inspired them to make change in their life, they haven't listened. They need to listen again. So thank you so much. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And, of course, you can always connect with me on my website, juliecroll.com. And, again, the Dr. Julie Show Dot com to find upcoming listeners and listen to the show one more time. There's so much there. Share it with your friends. Together, we are creating greater connectivity. And as we know, that's always a good thing. So thank you for tuning in. And until next time, I'm wishing you a conscious love and connection. Bye for now. <laughs> 